you, Jim, for that ministry of music. This is short tonight. Hopefully it is sweet as well as uh, we look at the confidence we can have in the Word of God. Let me just briefly review the different views of truth in modernism and postmodernism, and then how the Word of God addresses those views of truth. In modernism, we have stressed the fact that truth is discovered. It's not revealed. Uh, You ascertain, discover what is true. You talk about the scientific method of making a hypothesis and then uh, taking data, and uh, ultimately coming up with a conclusion. So truth is discovered, not revealed. And even in the approach to Scripture, truth is discovered. You try to find out what uh, is hidden in the text, oftentimes in modernism. But what is most pertinent to us is that truth is discovered individually. You've got to discover the truth for yourself, and I have to discover the truth for myself. And so the modernistic era had a tremendous negative impact upon the church. First, because it was individualistic. Everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. Everybody believed what they wanted to believe. Everybody practiced what they wanted to practice. And so somehow the strange concept came along And people would even wonder, is it necessary to go to church if you're a Christian? What value is there in going to church if you're a Christian? Can't I just walk in the woods and have my own personal time with God? Who needs formal teaching? Who needs the other believers in Christ? It was very, very individualistic. It was individualistic as it came to the person. It was even individualistic in which it affected the church, and especially in America. Because a phenomena came in the 1800s and 1900s, and that was the independent church. Where a church prided itself in not having an affiliation with anybody else. As though somehow that was better. As though somehow, in separating from the body of Christ, you were being more faithful to God and to the scriptures. And so something which was totally unheard of in church history was local congregations that were not intending to have fellowship with other local congregations, the independent church movement. And then something sprang up that was even more profound, and that was the parachurch organization. And more and more, the church was seen as a hindrance if you really want to get things done, you've got to go outside the church. If you, if you really want to evangelize, if, if you want to have a meaningful impact, you better forget about the church and just go do it yourself. And so parachurch organizations 
began to arise. Groups that were Christian-oriented, but not affiliated with any particular church, did not pretend to be a church, did not try to promote any relationship to the church, but were a group of believers that got together to do the work of God apart from the church. If the church wanted to support it, that was great. But other than that, they were separate from the church. So, postmodernism comes along. And it's having a profound effect in each one of those three areas. First, truth in postmodernism is subjective, not objective. I'm going to get more to that. But if you remember, when I talked about pluralism, I said that in pluralism, truth is found everywhere in part and nowhere in whole. Remember that? So that means we need others to help us understand and arrive at the truth. We realize that we need import, import that's more than our own. And so, communities of faith became and is becoming very important. Uh, the idea that you gather together with others in order to hear and understand the truth. You're not just on your own, individualistically, trying to discover the truth, but you're gathering together in order to collectively arrive at the truth. So all of a sudden, church is back in vogue. And gathering together with people to study the Bible is back in vogue, as opposed to just going out with your Bible and sitting by yourself under a tree. Now you want to sit with other people and study the Word of God. Now, the focus is not on independence, but collectiveness. And church history has come back in vogue. Now, the younger generation is enamored with church history, especially the councils, such as uh, Chalcedon and... Uh, uh, my mind has gone blank. Uh, Nicaea, yeah, thank you. The uh, uh, Council of Nicaea, uh, where doctrinal truth was hammered out. Now there's a great emphasis on the fact that we need to understand truth collectively. Uh, what happened during the independent era and during the time in which churches were splattered all over the place, doctrine went everywhere. Because it didn't matter what was being taught because nothing was authoritative. It was up to the individual to decide what was right and what was wrong. In fact, many places prided themselves on the fact that uh, they had no earthly authority, such as the Plymouth Brethren Church. They don't want to be called a church, though. The Plymouth Brethren Movement uh, prided themselves on the fact that they don't have ordination. There is no earthly accountability. But these are people that are just raised up by God to teach, and there is no accountability, there's no recognition. Now ordination is back in vogue. Now the thought is, before somebody goes out to preach, they ought to have the stamp of approval of the Christian community. 
that that call should be recognized. If God has raised them up, we should see within them gifts, abilities. We should see the Spirit of God at work. And so ordination is back in vogue. Denominations are back in vogue. And the church is back in vogue. So that now people are saying, ah, these parachurch organizations, uh, they're, they're, they're pretty fly by night. There's nobody to whom they're accountable or responsible beyond themselves. Uh, they ought to come under the jurisdiction and authority of the church. That is an incredibly different movement that is taking place in this very day. Okay, so, so the church is starting to look different. It's about the body of Christ and a recognition of who are the true people of God and fellowshipping with the true people of God. Tonight, I want us to look at this idea that truth is objective, not subjective. In postmodernism, all truth is subjective. We can never get outside of ourselves in postmodernism. We can never get beyond our own limited perspective, our own experiences. We are governed by tradition, by our family, by our culture, where we live. And so we read the Bible through that lens. Well, there's a lot of truth to that. And the idea is that you can never get beyond that. You, you, you can't get outside of your own experience. That's why you need the collective experiences of others. But even then, you can't get to truth out there. So, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the idea that there is a tree and that tree is green in postmodernism is subjective, not objective. How do you know that the green that you see is the same green that I see? Is the question that exists in postmodernism. Well, how does the Bible speak to that? Well, notice with me, theme. We're to have supreme confidence in the Word of God. We can have more confidence in the Word of God than the most reliable human reports. Why is that? Well, it's a very postmodern thought. And that is, in my humanness, I am always going to bring to it my own perspective, which may or may not be correct. We find that the Word of God teaches us that we can have more confidence in the Word of God than we can have in human experience. Notice 2 Peter 1.9. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. It's referring to the scripture. And Peter says that the prophetic word has been made more sure, more reliable, because we have the word. More sure than what? Answer, more sure than human reports. Look at A. We can have more sure of what is written in the word of God than in what the apostles saw with their own eyes. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter said that he and others were eyewitnesses to the transformation. 
that time in which Jesus was on a mount, and God appeared to him, and, and Moses appeared to him, and they were there. And they were eyewitnesses to all that took place. And Peter says, we have something more sure than that. We have something more reliable than that. B, we can be more sure of what is written in the word of God than what the apostles heard with their own ears. For when, we received, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an, an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and we ourselves heard this utterance from heaven. Now imagine that. Peter says, we heard God's voice from heaven. We heard him speak. And we have more confidence in the word of God than we had in hearing God's voice from heaven. How the world can that be? See, we can be more sure of what is written in the word of God than what the apostles experienced in person. And we ourselves heard the utterance made from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. The idea is their personal experience. They saw with their eyes the transformation of Jesus Christ. They saw Moses appear. They heard with their ears a voice coming down out of heaven. And they were there with Jesus, accompanying him up the mountain and down the mountain. They had an incredible experience. And yet they say, we have something that's more reliable than that. We have the word of God. Now, why is the word of God more reliable than that kind of experience? That's an important question to ask. Especially when there are people that want to tout their own revelations. And that God appeared and spoke to them, which I highly doubt. But the word of God says we should have more confidence in the word of God than that. Why? Well, two reasons why we can have more confidence in the word of God than the most reliable human sources. First... We can have more confidence in the word of God than the most reliable human reports because the word of God is not merely the interpretation of the writer's understanding of the events that have taken place. 2 Peter 1.20 But we know this first of all. This is his first point. That no prophecy of scripture is of a matter of one's own interpretation. That when these words of God came, they were not... Subjective in nature. The very thing that postmodernism says it is. says it wasn't. It wasn't of their own private interpretation. You see, it's possible for us to be eyewitnesses of an event and misread what's taking place. We don't always see everything that's going on. Sometimes we arrive late on the scene. It's like a... a, a, a referee in a basketball game that calls the foul on the guy that hits back rather than the guy that throws the first punch. Sometimes we think we see something and, then, and we make a mistake. Like that umpire that caused that poor fellow to lose the perfect game because he called a person safe that in fact was out. And later, when he could see it in slow motion, he even admitted that he made a mistake. Sometimes we can have the wrong impression. And that is the objection that many people make to the scripture. The idea is that it is 
subjective on the part of the Apostle Paul. And so, concerning issues like women in the church, well, Paul was a product of his t- culture. He was a, a product of his time. Uh, he viewed things through the eyes and the lens of the, the particular period in which he lived, but if he were alive today, he would say something far different. The scripture says that's not how it works. It wasn't their take on their experience. They just didn't sit down and reflect and muse on all the things that they had seen and heard and then write it simply in their account. B. We can have more confidence in the Word of God than the most reliable human reports because the Word of God is not merely the result of a writer's own initiative. 2 Peter 1.21 For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. It wasn't that they decided that they were going to address certain issues. And sometimes even I am guilty of the way in which I phrase certain things about how Paul wrote and the things that Paul said. And you can almost get the impression that Paul is motivated out of his own sense of importance, of what needs to be addressed, what needs to be uh, talked about. No prophecy of Scripture was made by an act of human will. It wasn't a, a predetermined agenda on the part of the apostles. They, they didn't have an agenda of trying to get us to do or say something. I have tried to practice over the years as a result of the belief of this particular point and why I think expository preaching is so important. I've never tried to preach to somebody. I don't sit on a Tuesday morning and picture the congregation and say, what do they need to hear? What does this person have to get right in their life? What is the most important issue in the life of the church today? And address that. But rather, I believe that if you preach the word of God, verse by verse, that the spirit of God will address those issues. That's the importance of preaching the whole counsel of God. What people need to hear, they're going to hear. And it won't be me addressing these issues. It'll be the Spirit of God addressing these issues. And nobody's going to be able to get up and say as they walk out of church, he was fingering me today. Because you know, we're just moving through a text. And we're taking it where it leads us. And there's a a power in that. And a recognition of of a a divine uh, activity in that. So it was not a matter of human will. And then thirdly, we can have more confidence in the word of God than the most reliable human reports. Because the word of God is not merely the product of men, but the product of God. Now, this is the most significant element. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but, conversely, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is the application of the doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration is that act by which God the Holy Spirit conveyed and uh, so superintended the writing of Scripture so that they conveyed the thoughts that God wanted 
conveyed, that the words that they spoke were the words that he wanted to have spoken, and that it is kept free from error in fact, doctrine, and judgment. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit from God. You see, that is an external as opposed to an internal activity. We're not talking about something from within. We are talking about something from without. Inspiration is not internal, it is external. When we think of being moved, uh, we have a tendency to think about inspiration the way it's used in the English as opposed to the way in which it's used in the Greek. For example, when we use the word commonly in, to be inspired, the common vernacular would say something like, the poet looked out and, and it was just, he saw this incredible sunset. And so he was inspired, he was moved to write a poem that speaks of the thoughts and emotions that were created from within as he looked out. But you see, it's an internal that's responding to the external. That's not what inspiration is. It's not the internal responding to the external. It's the external controlling the internal. So let me give you an illustration. It comes from actually this Greek word that's used in 2 Peter 1.21, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. This word moved is important. It's a word that is, it's a nautical term for a boat that is driven by the wind. But we're not talking about a boat that has set a sail and the person has a rudder and so he puts up the sail to catch the wind and he has a rudder that is steering this boat to port. That's not the imagery. This is an imagery of a boat on a sea that has fierce winds that are blowing against this boat. And try as he might to steer the ship, it's going to be blown off course. And it's carried by the wind to a destination that has nothing to do with the rudder or even the sail because it's a, a gale force that has overpowered this boat. That's the picture of inspiration. That it is the overpowering activity and movement of God so that these men arrive at the place that God wants them to arrive at. That what they say is what God wants to be conveyed. They are vessels overpowered by the Spirit of God. That is the external activity of the Spirit. That's how we have the Word of God. By the external 
activity of God. Next week, we're going to look at the fact that not only is the Word of God produced by the Holy Spirit, but the Word of God is understood by the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that enables us to overcome our limitations. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to understand what we could not understand without his enablement. It is the Holy Spirit that is going to help us to overcome our culture, our forces. So do not be conformed to this world with all its pressures that are molding us to think and act a certain way, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the Holy Spirit enables us to go contrary to what we've been taught, to go contrary to our experience, to go contrary to our culture, to go contrary to our thoughts. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. But by the Holy Spirit, we're willing to embrace God's thoughts and leave ours behind. That's how we overcome the limitation of perspective. God's truth is external, not subjectively internal. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to have supreme confidence in the Word of God and to believe its truth and to recognize the, the value of your truth. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me, since I got ten minutes, I fooled you. I, I, I did a terrible thing there. You thought you were going to be gone. But let me just wrap up to bring the full question because you may not have gotten what I was trying to get at um, when I, I, I was saying that the truth is individualistic in modernism. It's communi- communicable in uh, uh, postmodernism. So why is the church valuable? Because if it's truth, we should see the same thing. If it's truth, we should come to the same conclusion. If two and two is four, it should always be four. No matter which school you go to. I don't know any school district in which they're unique because two and two is five in that particular program. Right? I don't know. North Lebanon, is it still two and two is four? Uh, There's something wrong when Church A and Church B don't believe the same thing. Because truth, by its very nature, is universal. There is something wrong when we can't agree on what the Word of God has to say. The goal is not individuality. The goal is the common understanding of truth. It's not the individualistic, I don't need these other churches, but rather it's a humble recognition that if we all believe the truth, then we should all come to the same conclusion. Jesus really is God. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And we need to emphasize the corporate nature of truth. We should have an appreciation for the community of believers. We should recognize the importance 
of ordination, that we are teaching the same things, that we are communicating the same beliefs, because truth is more than just my individual perception. Truth goes beyond and becomes corporate in nature. Okay, thanks. I'm done.